Section 14 of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in July 2019. Chapter 11. The Opening of the Sealed Door. By the middle of February, our work in the antechamber was finished. With the exception of the two sentinel statues, left for a special reason, all its contents had been removed to the laboratory, every inch of its floor had been swept and sifted for the last bead or fallen piece of inlay, and it now stood bare and empty. We were ready at last to penetrate the mystery of the sealed door. Friday the 17th was the day appointed, and at two o'clock those who were to be privileged to witness the ceremony met by appointment above the tomb. They included Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn Herbert, His Excellency Abdel Halim Pasha Suleiman, Minister of Public Works, Monsieur Lacot, Director General of the Service of Antiquities, Sir William Garston, Sir Charles Cust, Mr. Lithgow, Curator of the Egyptian Department of the Metropolitan Museum, New York, Professor Breasted, Dr. Alan Gardiner, Mr. Winlock, the Honorable Mervyn Herbert, the Honorable Richard Bethel, Mr. Engelbach, Chief Inspector of the Department of Antiquities, three Egyptian inspectors of the Department of Antiquities, the representative of the Government Press Bureau, and the members of the staff, about twenty persons in all. By a quarter past two the whole company had assembled, so we removed our coats and filed down the sloping passage into the tomb. In the antechamber everything was prepared and ready, and to those who had not visited it since the original opening of the tomb it must have presented a strange sight. We had screened the statues with boarding to protect them from possible damage, and between them we had erected a small platform, just high enough to enable us to reach the upper part of the doorway, having determined, as the safest plan, to work from the top downwards. A short distance back from the platform there was a barrier, and beyond, knowing that there might be hours of work ahead of us, we had provided chairs for the visitors. On either side standards had been set up for our lamps, their light shining full upon the doorway. Looking back, we realize what a strange, incongruous picture the chamber must have presented, but at the time I question whether such an idea even crossed our minds. One thought, and one only, was possible. There before us lay the sealed door, and with its opening we were to blot out the sentries and stand in the presence of a king who reigned three thousand years ago. My own feelings, as I mounted the platform, were a strange mixture, and it was with a trembling hand that I struck the first blow. My first care was to locate the wooden lintel above the door, then very carefully I chipped away the plaster and picked out the small stones which formed the uppermost layer of the filling. The temptation to stop and peer inside at every moment was irresistible, and when, after about ten minutes of work, I had made a hole large enough to enable me to do so, I inserted an electric torch. An astonishing sight its light revealed, for there, within a yard of the doorway, stretching as far as one could see, and blocking the entrance to the chamber, stood what to all appearance was a solid wall of gold. 
For the moment there was no clue as to its meaning, so as quickly as I dared I set to work to widen the hole. This had now become an operation of considerable difficulty, for the stones of the masonry were not accurately squared blocks built regularly upon one another, but rough slabs of varying size, some so heavy that it took all one's strength to lift them. Many of them, too, as the weight above was removed, were left so precariously balanced that the least false movement would have sent them sliding inwards to crash upon the contents of the chamber below. We were also endeavouring to preserve the seal impressions upon the thick mortar of the outer face, and this added considerably to the difficulty of handling the stones. Mace and Calendar were helping me by this time, and each stone was cleared on a regular system. With a crowbar I gently eased it up, Mace holding it to prevent it falling forwards, then he and I lifted it out and passed it back to Calendar, who transferred it on to one of the foremen, and so by a chain of workmen up the passage and out of the tomb altogether. With the removal of a very few stones the mystery of the golden wall was solved. We were at the entrance of the actual burial chamber of the king, and that which barred our way was the side of an immense gilt shrine built to cover and protect the sarcophagus. It was visible now from the antechamber by the light of the standard lamps, and as stone after stone was removed, and its gilded surface came gradually into view, we could, as though by electric current, feel the tingle of excitement which thrilled the spectators behind the barrier. The photographs on plates 43 and 44, taken during the progress of the work, will give the reader some idea of what they actually saw. We who were doing the work were probably less excited, for our whole energies were taken up with the task at hand, that of removing the blocking without an accident. The fall of a single stone might have done irreparable damage to the delicate surface of the shrine, so, directly the hole was large enough, we made an additional protection for it by inserting a mattress on the inner side of the door blocking, suspending it from the wooden lintel of the doorway. Two hours of hard work it took us to clear away the blocking, or at least as much of it as was necessary for the moment and at one point, when near the bottom, we had to delay operations for a space, while we collected the scattered beads from a necklace brought by the plunderers from the chamber within and dropped upon the threshold. This last was a terrible trial to our patience, for it was a slow business, and we were all of us excited to see what might be within, but finally it was done, the last stones were removed, and the way to the innermost chamber lay open before us. In clearing away the blocking of the doorway, we had discovered that the level of the inner chamber was about four feet lower than that of the antechamber, and this, combined with the fact that there was but a narrow space between door and shrine, made an entrance by no means easy to effect. Fortunately, there were no smaller antiquities at this end of the chamber, so I lowered myself down, and then, taking one of the portable lights, I edged cautiously to the corner of the shrine and looked beyond it. At the corner, two beautiful alabaster vases blocked the way, but I could see that if these were removed we should have a clear path to the other end of the chamber, so, carefully marking the spot on which they stood, I picked them up, 
with the exception of the king's wishing cup they were of finer quality and more graceful shape than any we had yet found and passed them back to the antechamber lord carnarvon and monsieur lacour now joined me and picking our way along the narrow passage between shrine and wall paying out the wire of our light behind us we investigated further it was beyond any question the sepulchral chamber in which we stood for there towering above us was one of the great gilt shrines beneath which kings were laid so enormous was this structure seventeen feet by eleven feet and nine feet high we found afterwards that it filled within a little the entire area of the chamber a space of some two feet only separating it from the walls on all four sides while its roof with cornice top and torus moulding reached almost to the ceiling from top to bottom it was overlaid with gold and upon its sides there were inlaid panels of brilliant blue faience in which were represented repeated over and over the magic symbols which would ensure its strength and safety around the shrine resting upon the ground there were a number of funerary emblems and at the north end the seven magic oars the king would need to ferry himself across the waters of the underworld the walls of the chamber unlike those of the antechamber were decorated with brightly painted scenes and inscriptions brilliant in their colours but evidently somewhat hastily executed these last details we must have noticed subsequently for at the time our one thought was of the shrine and of its safety had the thieves penetrated within it and disturbed the royal burial here on the eastern end were the great folding doors closed and bolted but not sealed that would answer the question for us eagerly we drew the bolts swung back the doors and there within was a second shrine with similar bolted doors and upon the bolts a seal intact this seal we determined not to break for our doubts were resolved and we could not penetrate further without risk of serious damage to the monument i think at the moment we did not even want to break the seal for a feeling of intrusion had descended heavily upon us with the opening of the doors heightened probably by the almost painful impressiveness of a linen pole decorated with golden rosettes which drooped above the inner shrine we felt that we were in the presence of the dead king and must do him reverence and in imagination could see the doors of the successive shrines open one after the other till the innermost disclosed the king himself carefully and as silently as possible we reclosed the great swing doors and passed on to the farther end of the chamber here a surprise awaited us for a low door eastwards from the sepulchral chamber gave entrance to yet another chamber smaller than the outer ones and not so lofty this doorway unlike the others had not been closed and sealed we were able from where we stood to get a clear view of the whole of the contents and a single glance sufficed to tell us that here within this little chamber lay the greatest treasures of the tomb facing the doorway on the farther side stood the most beautiful monument that i have ever seen so lovely that it made one gasp with wonder and admiration the central portion of it consisted of a large shrine-shaped chest 
completely overlaid with gold and surmounted by a cornice of sacred cobras. Surrounding this, freestanding, were statues of the four tutelary goddesses of the dead, gracious figures with outstretched protective arms, so natural and lifelike in their pose, so pitiful and compassionate the expression upon their faces, that one felt it almost sacrilege to look at them. One guarded the shrine on each of its four sides, but whereas the figures at front and back kept their gaze firmly fixed upon their charge, an additional note of touching realism was imparted by the other two, for their heads were turned sideways, looking over their shoulders towards the entrance, as though to watch against surprise. There is a simple grandeur about this monument that made an irresistible appeal to the imagination, and I am not ashamed to confess that it brought a lump to my throat. It is undoubtedly the canopic chest, and contains the jars which play such an important part in the ritual of mummification. There were a number of other wonderful things in the chamber, but we found it hard to take them in at the time, so inevitably were one's eyes drawn back again and again to the lovely little goddess figures. Immediately in front of the entrance lay the figure of the jackal god Anubis, upon his shrine, swathed in linen cloth, and resting upon a portable sled, and behind this the head of a bull upon a stand, emblems these of the underworld. In the south side of the chamber lay an endless number of black shrines and chests, all closed and sealed save one, whose open doors revealed statues of Tutankhamun standing upon black leopards. On the farther wall were more shrine-shaped boxes and miniature coffins of gilded wood, these last undoubtedly containing funerary statuettes of the king. In the centre of the room, left of the Anubis and the bull, there was a row of magnificent caskets of ivory and wood, decorated and inlaid with gold and blue faience, one, whose lid we raised, containing a gorgeous ostrich feather fan with ivory handle, fresh and strong to all appearance as when it left the maker's hand. There were also, distributed in different quarters of the chamber, a number of model boats with sails and rigging all complete, and, at the north side, yet another chariot. Such, from a hurried survey, were the contents of this innermost chamber. We looked anxiously for evidence of plundering, but on the surface there was none. Unquestionably the thieves must have entered, but they cannot have done more than open two or three of the caskets. Most of the boxes, as has been said, have still their seals intact, and the whole contents of the chamber, in fortunate contrast to those of the antechamber and the annex, still remain in position exactly as they were placed at the time of burial. How much time we occupied in this first survey of the wonders of the tomb, I cannot say, but it must have seemed endless to those anxiously waiting in the antechamber. No more than three at a time could be admitted with safety, so when Lord Carnarvon and Monsieur Lacour came out, the others came in pairs. First Lady Evelyn Herbert, the only woman present, with Sir William Garston, and then the rest in turn. It was curious, as we stood in the antechamber, to watch their faces, as one by one they emerged from the door. Each had a dazed, bewildered look in his eyes, 
and each in turn, as he came out, threw up his hands before him, an unconscious gesture of impotence to describe in words the wonders that he had seen. They were indeed indescribable, and the emotions they had aroused in our minds were of too intimate a nature to communicate, even though we had the words at our command. It was an experience which, I am sure, none of us who were present is ever likely to forget, for in imagination, and not wholly in imagination either, we had been present at the funeral ceremonies of a king long dead and almost forgotten. At a quarter past two we had filed down into the tomb, and when, three hours later, hot, dusty and dishevelled, we came out once more into the light of day, the very valley seemed to have changed for us and taken on a more personal aspect. We had been given the freedom. February 17th was a day set apart for an inspection of the tomb by Egyptologists, and fortunately most of those who were in the country were able to be present. On the following day the Queen of the Belgians and her son Prince Alexander, who had come to Egypt for that special purpose, honoured us with a visit, and were keenly interested in everything they saw. Lord and Lady Allenby, and a number of other distinguished visitors, were present on this occasion. A week later, for reasons stated in an earlier chapter, the tomb was closed and once again reburied. So ends our preliminary season's work on the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Now as to that which lies ahead of us. In the coming winter our first task, a difficult and anxious one, will be the dismantling of the shrines in the sepulchral chamber. It is probable, from evidence supplied by the Ramesses for Papyrus, that there will be a succession of no fewer than five of these shrines, built one within the other, before we come to the stone sarcophagus in which the king is lying, and in the spaces between these shrines we may expect to find a number of beautiful objects. With the mummy, if, as we hope and believe, it remains untouched by plunderers, there should certainly lie the crowns and other regalia of a king of Egypt. How long this work in the sepulchral chamber will take, we cannot tell at present, but it must be finished before we tackle the innermost chamber of all, and we shall count ourselves lucky if we can accomplish the clearing of both in a single season. A further season will surely be required for the annex with its confused jumble of contents. Imagination falters at the thought of what the tomb may yet disclose, for the material dealt with in the present volume represents but a quarter, and that probably the least important quarter, of the treasure which it contains. There are still many exciting moments in store for us before we complete our task, and we look forward eagerly to the work that lies ahead. One shadow must inevitably rest upon it, one regret which all the world must share, the fact that Lord Carnarvon was not permitted to see the full fruition of his work, and in the completion of that work we, who are to carry it out, would dedicate to his memory the best that in us lies. End of section 14 End of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter and A.C. Mace Read by Avai Thanks for listening.